And we are into the last few chapters of uh, 2 Corinthians. And in them, uh, Paul faces a bit of a challenge, doesn't he? Because new leaders have appeared in the church there, leaders who Paul calls sarcastically, verse 5, super-apostles, literally hyper-apostles. Because these guys, they are engaging speakers, and they can draw a crowd and work that crowd, and they make much of their spiritual power. Okay, but if you think about it, how is Paul supposed to deal with them, with these hyper-apostles? And how is he supposed to deal with the church in Corinth's attraction to them without doing exactly what these super-apostles are doing, without promoting himself or making himself look even better than them, you know, a hyper-hyper-apostle? And, hey, you know, this is how good I am, so you should listen to me and not to them. Okay, but there's another reason, isn't there? Or there's another question, rather than just, you know, how is he supposed to do it? Why bother at all? Why bother tackling these super apostles and the church's attraction to them? Why not just let the church in Corinth listen to them and follow them if that's what they want? I mean, it's a free world, isn't it? And if, uh, if these uh, super apostles feel good to the Corinthians and their stuff, their teaching works for them... Why not just let them? And the answer is, of course, is because Paul knows what you know. And that is that ideas and the people who you listen to and the culture that you swim in have this power to shape you. They change the way you see things, like the things you think of or the things you see as being right or wrong or the priorities that you place on things. And the things that shape you make you, and the things you feed on form you. You Back in October, Peter Werner, who's a senior fellow at the um, Ethics and Public Policy Center in the US, he's a former speechwriter for Presidents uh, Reagan and the two Bushes, he wrote a, a really interesting article in the Atlantic magazine entitled the evangelical church is breaking apart. And in it, he documents the unprecedented level of tension in evangelical churches in the US. And he wrote, culture catechizes. Culture teaches us, he says, what matters and what views we should take about what matters. Our current political culture, he says, has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, and podcasts among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, he says, the people they think are like them, the people they think are on their side, subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour after hour. And his point is, the media that we consume or the personalities that we listen to, the culture that we swim in, they are all forming us. They're catechizing us. They're teaching us more than the gospel does with devastating effects on churches. Okay, but of course it doesn't just matter for churches, does it? It matters for families. This matters for friendships. It matters for societies. 
the messages that we listen to, the preachers, both inside and outside the church, that we give our attention to, shape us and make us. And Paul knew that better than anyone. And he could see these Corinthians being formed by messengers and a message that was not the gospel. There's not the good news of the Lord Jesus. And he wanted to do something about it. So he says to them, verse 1, bear with me. Bear with me. I'm going to say some stuff that, is, that might be hard for you to hear, but you need to hear it. So bear with me. Okay, first point then, the devotion of our hearts. Look at verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, jealousy is not really an emotion that we tend to think positively about, is it? I mean, someone who is eaten up with jealousy is generally not someone that it is fun to be around. Because jealousy does exactly that, doesn't it? It eats you up. It corrodes your inner self. It has the power to stain all of our interactions with others. And we can be jealous of what someone else has, their stuff, their relationships, their looks, their success. And it's not just that we're envious of it, that we want it for ourselves. We want it for ourselves and we don't want them to have it because we see them as a threat. And that resentment can gnaw away at us on the inside. It eats us up. It corrodes but that's human jealousy. And what Paul says is that he is experiencing divine jealousy. And when God gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, he said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he said that in the context of the second commandment. Don't make, don't worship idols. Don't go running off after other gods. Be faithful to me, because there's a right jealousy, isn't there? There's a jealousy that comes out of that kind of love, the kind of devoted, exclusive love. The love of God for his people, the love of a husband or a wife for their spouse. It's a love that grows angry at the thought of the one it loves, falling for fake imitations of love. It's a love that only wants the best for the one that it loves. And that is how Paul feels towards these Corinthians. Except if you notice, it's not because he wants their love and their loyalty for himself. He's not jealous for his own sake. It's if he's their lover. And these leaders, these false leaders, these new leaders, these hyper apostles are taking away the people from him. Instead, he says, he is like a father taking his daughter on his arm down the aisle on her wedding day to her true lover, to her true bridegroom. Verse 2. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You may not think of it like that, but that is the relationship that you as an individual, if you're a Christian, are to have to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the relationship that a local church like Corinth or a local church like us here in Westlake is to have to the Lord Jesus. A relationship, verse 3, of sincere and pure devotion to Christ. A relationship of love 
a relationship of faithful intimacy where Christ is the one who has our hearts. Of course, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that either Christ will have our hearts and we'll give our hearts to him, or something else will have our hearts. Because the hard truth is Christ has his competitors. Christ has his rivals for your affections. And either he will be the one forming and shaping you and, and me, or someone else, or something else, or some other ideology, or some other worldview will be doing that. And what the experience of these Corinthians tells us is that those rivals for your heart may look and sound very much like the real thing. But just like a man who tries to seduce another man's wife, however much that man looks like the real husband, however much he looks like the real thing, he's not the real thing. Okay, but if that happens, if we are you know, led astray, if, if something else gets our heart, if something other than Christ has the first place in our heart, it will be that that forms you. It'll be that that shapes your attitudes and your ambitions. It'll be that that shapes your priorities in life. It'll be that thing that shapes and forms the way you respond or speak or behave. Because we always see life through the lens of the thing that we are devoted to. Second point then, the danger of seduction. And Paul is clear that the world that we live in is not spiritually neutral, is it? There, there is, we face danger. There's danger out there. Verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent took God's word and twisted it. He twisted God's word to persuade Eve that Eve, Eve, you would be so much better off. Your life would flourish far better if you decided for yourself what is right and wrong. And God and his boundaries, they're not good. They're not good for you. And by making what was wrong look right, he lured her away from God. If you think about it, fly fishermen do exactly the same thing, don't they? They use the same tactic, and they even call it a lure. Okay, they use something that looks just like a fly or an insect. Something that looks like the real thing, as close as possible to the real thing. And it makes the fish think, that is going to taste so good. But it's hiding a hook. And Paul describes the serpent's deception as cunning, because it sounded so plausible. It sounded so reasonable. It sounded so logical. Because that is where the battlefield for our lives and our hearts is, Paul says. Verse 3, your thoughts, your mind, that's where we will or will not be led astray from devotion to Christ. Okay, think how that can happen. 
The circumstances of your life might change. Okay, maybe overnight, something you know, happens to you, someone you love, your family, and it leaves you thinking, God, why have you let this happen? Why have you let this happen to me? And in that moment, a voice comes whispering because he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really love you. In fact, he may not even really be there. And like Eve, you can find yourself questioning the goodness of God. And when that doubt takes root in your mind, you might still go through the motions of religion. All the external stuff might still be there. You might still come to church. You might still even open your Bible and read it. You might even say your prayers. But your devotion is not as sincere as Paul calls it here because your heart isn't in it. You're going through the motions because your love for God has grown cold. Okay, so it might be the circumstances of our lives that leave us, uh, draw us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Or again, as with Eve, it might be cunning. The thing that draws you away might look very much like the gospel, but in reality, it is a counterfeit. Verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Okay, so the danger is, Paul is saying, is that you can look to something other than Jesus for what the gospel offers you. Okay, think what that is. You look somewhere else for your justification for your being made right with God and him telling you that he loves you and approves of you. And you look for that somewhere else other than Jesus. Or you look somewhere else other than Jesus for your sanctification, for what the righteous life, the good life, what flourishing in life really looks like. And you look somewhere other than him for that. Now, Paul doesn't tell us enough to know for sure what the force Jesus was that these false hyper-apostles, super-apostles were preaching. We can hazard a guess, can't we? I mean, given their emphasis on power and prestige and the fact that Corinth was this elitist, entrepreneurial city where status and wealth mattered, hey, we, can, we can hazard a guess. And maybe it was the Jesus of your best life now. Hey, the Jesus who, if you follow him, he's going to make everything better. He's going to make you the head and not the tail. Follow him and your life is going to go well. But of course, Jesus himself tells us things might just get worse. And if you follow him, you've got to pick up your cross and follow him. Okay, that might be the false Jesus they're being presented with. What are the kind of false Jesus that you and I might be presented with, that we might be tempted by? What about the therapeutic Jesus? The Jesus who accepts me and affirms me as I am and never asks me to repent and just says, hey, you are good as you are. Or the add-on Jesus, the Jesus who's a nice addition to your life, but he's hardly essential, is he? He's a sort of a Sunday thing, but he's not the core of your being. 
or he's a go-to when life is hard thing, but at other times when life is good, he hardly gets a look in. Or what about Jesus the employer? You know, I don't deserve God's love. I'm not worthy of that. So I have to earn it. I have to seek my wages from him. And if I behave, if I perform, if I do my job of saying my prayers and reading my Bible and coming to church and serving, he'll pay me my wage and he'll keep me safe and he'll bless me, he'll bless my family. But if I don't do those things, if I don't perform, if I don't behave, he might just fire me. Or what about family values, Jesus? And I can feel righteous. I can hold my head up. I can know that God approves of me because my marriage or my family are good. Or what about the political Jesus? Conservative or liberal, culture warrior or social activist. And we can feel justified and right with God because of our politics. And God is on my side because I'm on his side, unlike those people who are on the other side. What about the Jesus of my commitment, of my self-congratulation? And I'm saved by Jesus' grace, but thereafter it is my devotion to God that impresses him. It's my commitment to the truth or to acts of service, or my all-engaged worship. That's what makes me right with God. That's how I can know he smiles upon me, not least because I'm more committed than those people over there. Okay, now those can be deceptive because in many of them there are echoes of truth, aren't there? There are echoes of God's word, like the importance of family and care for the poor or the rule of law and our commitment to the truth or of sacrificial worship and of all engaged worship, sacrificial service, all engaged worship. They are echoes of the truth, but they are still not the gospel. A few months back, we ran out of Nutella. And so Sue bought another cheaper brand, Natoka, and she filled the Nutella jar with it. Okay, you all think she is beyond reproach, don't you? Okay, I know a different Sue. Okay. And she did it just to see if anyone would notice. Because, hey, it looks like the real thing, doesn't it? Even spreads like the real thing, but it's not the real thing. That's why Paul says in verse 14 that Satan... Natoka disguises himself as an angel of light. It's the closeness. It's the closeness to the real thing. It's the closeness to the true Jesus that can make it so deceptive. Okay, but look what Paul says. It's not just that you can believe a different Jesus. It's that if you do, you receive a different spirit, verse 4. It's not the Holy Spirit who bears his fruit in your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead, if you think, if you're looking for your justification or your sanctification elsewhere, it's going it's to breed a different spirit in you. If you think you are to be accepted as you are with no call to repent... How are you going to treat those who disagree with you? You're going to cancel them. 
You're going to try and erase them. Or if you think that you are justified by your politics, you will find yourself getting angry and factional with those who disagree with you, rather than peaceable, rather than the fruit of the, the, fruit of the Spirit, his peace coming through your life. Or if you think that your worth is tied to your success, you will use people rather than treat them with kindness, the kindness of the Spirit. Or if your joy, the joy of the Spirit, if, if your joy is dependent on your family or your religious effort or whatever else, you will be emotionally unstable. Because as things go well in that area, your joy goes up. But if they don't, your joy comes crashing down. And that is because, Paul says, we buy into a gospel that's not the gospel. It's not the message that is really good news. And it's because Paul knows that that he says, verses 5 and 6, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Okay, so people were clearly saying stuff like, you know that guy Paul? He's not in our league. He is so second division. Because, I mean, hey, come on, when it comes to commanding a crowd, when it comes to speaking in public, he just hasn't got it. So listen to us and not to him. Okay, now today, we may, not be we may not be so easily impressed by the kind of overly dramatic public speaking style that impressed Corinth. But who do you find more convincing? Who do you find more convincing? Who do you find yourself listening to? The guy who stutters and stammers his way through a presentation? or the one who is comfortable in his skin and controls the room. Okay, what is more likely to turn your head? The closely typed and printed text of an ancient book, or the slick graphics of some advert or social media post? Who captures your attention? The beautiful influencer and the hip pastor, or the plain Jane? or balding Bernard. Again, Paul is saying, it's not about the charisma of the speaker. It's about the content of the message. It's not about the style, it's about the substance. And these other leaders, they may be eloquent, they may be compelling, but they aren't preaching Christ and him crucified. And Paul, he may have been short on glitz and glamour, but he had knowledge, he says. He knew what the true gospel really was because the power of God, the thing that can really change a life, it's not charismatic personalities. It's not the big speaker. It's not some great worship meeting. It's not gimmicks. It's not even strong preaching. It's that Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead and he now reigns in heaven until the day he comes again. Okay, so we might be led astray from pure devotion by the circumstances of our life that tell us that God is not good. We might be led astray by counterfeit gospels or we might be swayed by show over substance. Okay, but if they thought Paul was a weak speaker. They had another complaint, didn't they? 
and that is that he refused to accept their financial support. Verse 7, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I don't know about you, don't you think that's really bizarre? Okay, they would think it a sin that he didn't charge them. I mean, why would a preacher refusing to accept money be a problem? You know, on those rare occasions when I have been asked to speak elsewhere or when a young couple comes to me and you know, says they're getting married and they ask, how much do we owe you? I mean, how much do you charge? And I say, hey, you don't owe me anything. It's my joy to do this for you. I have never once, not once, had someone go, that is so offensive. I, that is disgusting. I cannot believe you won't let us pay you. Okay, so why do the Corinthians? For two reasons. Okay, firstly, in their culture, manual laborers were viewed as little better than slaves. So imagine in a culture like that, where prestige and power are so valued, having as the leader of your church a man who, rather than take your money, made tents from the skins of dead animals and probably smelt like it as well. I mean, how socially embarrassing. Who's going to want to bring their friends to a church like that? Okay, but they also practice patronage, and wealthy people, patrons, would financially support those who are well-off, who in turn would give their wealthy patrons honour and deference, and thereby increase their patrons' social standing. And patrons, the wealthy patrons, would even give money to traveling orators and philosophers who would then compliment the people who had given them money in their speeches in the public square. Again, all to increase the patron's prestige. Okay, can you see the danger of that? Can you see the sense of obligation to the one financially supporting you? You see, it wasn't that Paul was too proud to accept financial support. Verse 9, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. What he wouldn't do was put himself in anyone's pocket. He wasn't prepared to tailor the message to the likes of the patrons. Because the real Jesus, the Jesus who Paul preached... Hey, I'm sorry to tell you, he's not a Jesus who agrees with you. He's not a Jesus who comes into line with you. He's the Jesus who calls us to come into line with him. Okay, now think about that. Because if the gospel is something that confronts us rather than agrees with us, why let that be the thing that forms you? If the real Jesus refuses to be your puppet, if he calls you to repent and to change, why make him the one that you're devoted to? Because, I mean, that goes totally against the grain of our current culture, doesn't it? Where you get to decide for yourself. You know, don't let anyone else tell you who you are or what you should do. You be true to you. Why embrace the opposite of that? Last point then, the one who truly loves you. 
Now, it seems that in response to Paul's refusal to take their money, the Corinthians accused him of not loving them. Verses 9 to 11. I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Okay, where does Paul get the idea of refusing to burden them? Of refusing to put a burden on them, but instead, out of love, bearing their burden? What worldview, what message, what person has formed him? Who has shaped Paul? Well, it's the same Jesus and the same gospel that Paul's preaching, isn't it? Because Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And at the cross, he was the great burden bearer. He bore our burdens and he did it for no pay. He carried the weight of all those times that we have run after other things and allowed them to form and distort us rather than him. And he didn't do it because he had to. And he didn't do it because he was in someone's pocket. And he didn't do it for his own selfish gain. He did it because he loves you. Because he was and is devoted to you with a love that is jealous. A love that will move heaven and earth to rescue us from every counterfeit love. And the true gospel confronts us and tells us we are so sinful and our heart is so wrong that Christ had to come and die to rescue us which kind of has the power to kill our pride, doesn't it? The pride that all these false gospels feed. But it also tells you that you are so loved by God that Christ did die for you. And that unconditional love, love, the love that you don't have to earn, can give you a deep security because it tells you Christ has already made you right with God. You are justified by him. So you don't need to look for that elsewhere. You don't need to run off after other stuff to try and make you feel right in God's sight or earn his love. And it means you can face your flaws and confront the areas that you need to change rather than run from them. So the gospel of Christ's love can transform us like no other false gospel can. And as it does, funnily enough, it'll be his spirit that is working in us, bearing his fruit. I mean, think about it. Knowing how much Christ has loved you will fill your heart with the love of the spirit for others. So you will care deeply about families, but not just the good ones. And you will care deeply about the poor and how to genuinely help them. And in terms of the joy of the Spirit, you will know a depth and stability to your joy in your heart, which means that you can come alongside the grieving and the hurting and bear their pain. And you will know that when you were his enemy, Christ made peace between you and God. 
So you'll work for peace, the peace of the Holy Spirit, and bring people together rather than drive them apart. And you'll know that Christ was and is abundantly patient with you. So you'll be patient with the patience of the Spirit with those who oppose you. And you will know that your worth is not dependent on your success. So you won't need to use people. Instead, you'll treat them with the kindness of the Spirit. And you will care deeply about the truth because you know there is such a thing as truth. But you'll hold it and defend it with goodness and gentleness and the self-control of the Spirit. Guys, there are a million so-called Gospels out there. Only one will make you more like Jesus. So embrace that one. Let's pray.